0: Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Places We'll Go show. Well, what can I say? What a treat we have for you today. Professor David Archer. the, well, an absolute luminary in the marketing industry. Um, welcome, David. Glad to be here. Well, it truly really is fabulous to have you here. So, I mean, some, well, will anybody need uh, this introduction? But, I mean, a, a one level, David is vice chair of profit, which is a, ultimately helps businesses to grow, and we can come back to that. But arguably, you are the father of modern branding. And we've had the likes of Byron Sharp and Mark Ritson and Philip Kotler on, and and you are absolutely up there as as one of the legends of the industry, and recognized as perhaps the authority on branding. Uh, Many people will be familiar with your brand vision model. You've won numerous awards. You're in the Hall of Fame with the AMA. The American Marketing Association. For those who aren't familiar, you've you've received in 2020 the the Chef Foundation Medal for exceptional contribution to marketing scholarship and practice. Professor emeritus at the Haas School of Business, UC Berkeley, multiple awards, speaking, thought leadership, written a few books. We'll come back to that. Not least, building strong brands. Those books have been converted into 18 languages, sold over a million copies. I could go on. But you ultimately have given lots of guidance guidance and inspiration to many marketing leaders all around the world. So it's an absolute pleasure to have you on the show, to hear about the man, the way you think, and your pearls of wisdom to anybody trying to make a career in marketing.
1: So fabulous to have you on the show. Glad to be here. David, It's it's a real special moment for us here. So just from me, a big, big thank you. I'm going to kick off by by asking you and I'm clearly you've had a remarkable journey in the field of branding and marketing. So I mean what initially sparked your interest in the field and what really has kept you passionate about it for all these decades?
2: Well, I I you know I feel sorry for those people in accounting and finance and manufacturing. I mean branding is is so fun and so interesting and it's uh it's kind of the story behind all the big successes at, in, uh, at the end of the day, usually. But uh, uh, I really kind of solidified my interest in when I was in undergraduate school at MIT, and I took a course in advertising. And uh, it was a case course. And we would go into these companies and brands and figure out what they needed to stand for and how to bring it to life. And I just thought that was fascinating. And uh, so... Uh, that was uh,
0: that was really where it started. So, so a, a bit of serendipity, but 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 ultimately maybe meant to be. And so you've had, you've had an amazing career. So I'm I'm I suppose I'm going to cut to the chase in one sense in terms of what are some of the most valuable lessons that you've learned about building successful brands.
2: I, I came to believe that that companies were too focused on short term financials. And they weren't building assets, and that was really the key to long-term strategy. So I, I sort of sit back. This was in the late '80s, and I said, "Well, uh, I, I want to devote my career in, in that direction. And what assets should uh, I help them build?" And I, I, I had a, I did a study in which I showed that three of the top sustainable uh, advantage uh, dimensions were branding um, brand equity was just, uh, emerging. It was, uh, emerging because the marketing people of the day had become frustrated because their, their strategy of just gaining market share at all costs, which came out of the BCG framework that was the, the strategy, uh, sort of, uh, um, sort of paradigm of the day, uh, wasn't working. And, uh, and in fact, it was in some cases destroying brands, and yeah. so they decided that uh, you know they got to do get back to some sort of growth paradigm, and and sort of their logic said that uh, it, it's really got to be involved brands, and we need to build brand equity, but nobody knew what brand equity was, and uh, so I wrote my first branding book which was called uh, Managing Brand Equity, in which I kind of defined brand equity. And more than that, I really pointed out how all the dimensions of brand equity, how they led to a successful business and a successful strategy.
1: I'm really intrigued about the book that you wrote about managing brand equity, and particularly maybe talking a little bit about what you saw were the key dimensions and levers of brand equity and growth and whether you think that's shifted at all through time.
2: Yeah. Well, my my um uh, you know, conceptualization of brand equity has evolved a little bit, but the structure is basically still the same. But instead of brand awareness, I now talk about brand relevance. So brand relevance is visibility, but it's also credibility. So to be relevant, you have to uh be credible. You have to say that you know, I don't know if I will choose this brand, but I think that it can do the job, and uh, there's no reason that I would exclude it from my kids, uh, my my choice set. And so, uh, so brand. I wrote a book on brand relevance, I wrote another one on an uh, on only game changing categories, which is all about uh, what you're. What you really want to do is to become the most relevant brand, or even the only relevant brand that's in fact the only way to grow. So relevance is is really important. It's a little different than I had it before. The second dimension is image. And uh, with respect to image, I had uh, broken up perceived quality, but I put that under the image umbrella. And I also emphasize that there's a functional and emotional element to image. And so that's a little bit uh, nuanced. But the 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 third thing I did, and what's really uh, uh, really changed things uh, dramatically is when I included brand loyalty as a dimension of brand equity. And and heretofore, uh, branding brand equity was awareness and image and, and it was something you could delegate to the ad agency because it was really a communication task. But I when I included brand loyalty, uh, that it first of all it makes sense if you're going to buy a brand, what you're really buying is the loyalty of the, the brand uh, people that affiliated with uh, uh, with the brand. You're branding you're you're buying the community, you're buying a loyal base. So loyalty just struck me as as being something that really you uh, you had to include in brand equity. And, and again, when, when you make that judgment, it really changes everything because now it's not something you just delegate to an ad agency. It's just not a communication pass. It now involves everybody in the company, it involves the people that are developing the products, the people that are, uh, you know, uh, helping people use the products or you use the service. It's the service experience. It's, it's uh, everything that affects the decision to stay with the brand, to to tell others of the brand, to uh, become
1: a a brand advocate. I wanna come on to something that you would be very close to your heart given it's your latest book, which is in and around the role of purpose-driven brands. Now, in amongst practitioners here today, we flip and flop sometimes in and around whether brands and all brands truly need a purpose front and center of what they do. And you take a classic example of Unilever in recent times, there's been, on the one hand, a a movement towards actually having brand purpose at the center of all their brands in their various categories and portfolios. And then probably just a little bit of late, maybe there's been a slight U-turn moment there and thinking about it more pragmatically. And I'd love to get your take on the role of purpose in the context of a brand, and whether it is actually, whether you believe it's required for every brand to have a purpose at the heart of what it does.
2: Yeah, I, I'm just heartbroken about the potential for Unilever to back away from their leadership position. I wrote a blog on that, and I don't know if it's up yet, but um, uh, yeah, it's it's uh, really uh, uh, yeah, really tragic. Uh, I, if you take, you know, first of all, the the uh, the the this was all started by a writer, I think, at Wall Street Journal or someplace, who said Hellman's is no business spending all this money. I mean, give me a break. I mean, how uninformed, how stupid was that? I mean, if you want to take a, a shot at one of 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 their brands, it should not be helmets. My God! For for first of all, they're they're pretty energy and refreshing. The core message of Hellman's Mayo has been around for 120 years. They started out as a product that let you can take your leftovers instead of throwing them away, you can make a tasty sandwich. That was been their message for over a century. It it's not something that they said. Oh, I want to do some do gooder program and and. And so I'll divert money from the real business over to that. And the second thing is they literally got 6 billion views from that shit. And, and I don't know what percentage, a high percentage cost nothing. Mm. Think of the energy and, and, the, and, the, and, the, and the image lift and the momentum and the involvement. They, they, they absolutely immeasurably change food waste. Measurably change food waste, so they got a lot of people on the Hellman's team. Make taste, not waste. Uh, can you imagine what that did to the business? I don't have a number for the business, but I'm sure that now. And this guy at the Wall Street Journal would think that Hellman's, if they had their eye on the ball, they would run ads about mayo, and and how it's you know with the ingredients and how it makes it smooth on the on the bread. I mean, really. Uh, but anyway, and if you go back to you know there's and Paul Paulman, who I think is a hero. He he never said everybody had to have a purpose. He never said that. Uh, the uh, uh, the the his got a brand named Axe. They went six years without a purpose. He said every brand should consider having a purpose and uh, if they can find one that works and helps them they should do it he never said they had to have a purpose that's the most ridiculous thing in the world and so but he 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 the he said if you do have a purpose that's working and everything you can become a sustainable brand you have the prestige within you know, leader be a sustainable brand if you don't you don't do whatever you want to do it's your your business you don't have to have a purpose at least a social purpose, and and so uh, and acts. Uh, finally, they 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 looked in their mirror and they said, first of all, I'm a little uncomfortable going to these international meetings of Unilever and people looking at me funny, and all I so I don't have to do anything. But but besides that, uh, it turns out this 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 uh, um, my my key. Uh, Sort of a point of difference is that I'm helping uh, young men attract women, and I'm I'm being a humorous person, and they'll therefore by extension they're a humorous person that and and they go along with the joke, and but that wasn't working anymore because in these days and times it just didn't sound very cool anymore. So they were they were in need of something else. So they changed their thing, and it's now more about men's uh, reaching their uh, ambition or reaching their full potential, and and X can help you do that. And um, and and so now, and then they became a sustainable brand because you know said yeah you now got a social purpose. Well, it, it wasn't because Paul Pullman said you have to have a social purpose. That's not how it works. And that's not how it works for sure anybody. I think everybody should consider a social purpose. And one reason is that the key to success now is to have differentiation, to have a way to attract, and to have energy. And and if you make mail, it's damn hard to get energy and engagement. It is, it's, I mean, it's just, it's it's a jar on the shelf. It's always been there. How can you create energy for that? So you make this uh, uh, make taste not waste program with this with this uh, Super Bowl ad where there's a linebacker crushing a grandmother that's about to throw away wasted food, uh, and and it, and it goes viral. And that's energy, that's visibility, that's that's you know, that's image, that's engagement. And you and how are you gonna get it any other way? Just you tell me and you tell me why that was somehow against capitalism. I mean it it's it it's so it's not only disheartening, it's just because these guys don't understand branding. They don't understand marketing. They don't understand strategy. They're not conversant with a business, and they're making these judgments.
0: Yeah, I mean this—that's clearly uh, an emotive subject. And and I I'm with you that social purpose is multidimensional and can you mentioned relevance. You know, it can give a brand relevance. So so the question I was going to ask on the back of that—you've already quoted uh, Axe and Hellman's. Uh, what is your favorite brand? And I don't mean the favorite brand that you buy the most, but your favorite brand in terms of they have consistently applied the models and the theory that you espouse. Who's up there at the top in terms of over time doing that on a consistent basis?
2: Um, That's a good question. Um, I don't know, but, but since, uh, a top of mind for me is whenever my last book was on and, and this was, um, you know, social programs. And, um, and a, and I think Unilever is is just phenomenal. I mean, I think the Dove program is yes. is probably the most impressive program, and that took a company or a business within Unilever that's doing two point six billion dollars is now doing six point five, and it is all on the back of a social program. It is, it's there's just no question about it. They it's not because they ran ads saying their soap is pure floats better or, or it's got more you know disease from it. It, it 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 was about the real beauty program the self-esteem program and now they got a program with uh, nike a joint program about the use of sport self-esteem. and self-esteem but um it it it's the the exposure the energy the image lift the engagement has been phenomenal and um uh, I think, yeah, if there's one brand story in the last two decades,
1: I would say it's the Dove Real Beauty program. What a wonderful example to pick on, David. Honestly, it is it is the ore of the industry, I absolutely have to say. Um, I want to turn a little bit in and around the role of emerging brands, particularly because in the last number of years, one would suggest that with the rise of e-commerce and D2C, as well as the barriers dropping across media, particularly in with the, with the rise of social and the like, it gives emerging brands a bigger place and space to potentially compete with larger counterparts. And I wondered if you believe that to be true or whether you still think the biggest brands always have the biggest advantage. And perhaps second to that is what advice would you give to emerging brands as they are trying to come up and compete.
2: Well, if you look at, uh, the, uh, you know, these big giant brands of the day, I mean, think of the the grocery chains, for example, or the department store chains, or the discount chains, uh, the Costco's of the world. And, um, uh, and, and then of course, Amazon, uh, or it's whatever is in Asia, this, the, that forms that function. And, uh, it, it seems impossible to compete against it. And indeed, uh, they engage in some practices that, uh, that really are, are the evils of monopoly. But I, I, uh, when I wrote this book, Game Changing uh, Subcategories, I, uh, I had a chapter in there about Amazon, and, uh, and a, a section of that chapter, how do you compete against Amazon? And I came up with six ways to compete, and and showed examples of how people had employed these six ways to compete. Um, one of them is you you show passion, and and credibility within it within an area. You know, I used a uh, example of Casper, a mattress company. They make mattresses. Well, uh, Amazon sells mattresses. But Amazon is a uh, is, is, is just a transaction company. It's a dist- uh, distribution company. They don't give a shit about mattresses. And Casper is not only a mattress company, they're a sleep company. They're focusing on sleep. They, they have a website with meditation programs. They've got a mattress that is designed for sleep. And uh, so if you want to buy a mattress from somebody that... Uh, that really knows mattresses and understands that the sleep angle you would, you would buy from, uh, from, from Casper. So, you know, Amazon can't compete with that. Amazon is a transactional organization. Very good at it, but th- that's what they are. And then, and then you have a simplicity, uh, company Dollar Shade went into the e- e-commerce razor blade business. And, uh, uh, they were, for, they were so successful four years later they sold their company for a million dollars but billion dollars but uh, uh, so this company, you know Amazon I, I somebody said that there was 20,000 options for buying razor blades on Amazon. 20,000 options. And uh, at uh, Dollar Shake Club there are three options. Now, do you really want twenty thousand options to buy razor blades? And so, just the simplicity is another. The third thing is uh, a personality. You know, Dollar Shave Company is this completely irreverent, feisty underdog. They they ridicule Amazon. They ridicule the drugstores where you buy stuff. And uh, and you know, and they 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 send out with their with their. Uh, the e-commerce product, the little booklet, this of humorous, you know, asides and so on, that you're supposed to wear, use when you go or read when you're going to the bathroom, and they're they're, they're just very feisty underdogs, funny people like that, and Amazon, there's no way I, Amazon can be a feisty underdog, uh, they're the 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 big gorilla and uh and then personal touch i mean amazon you can't call up amazon you can contact dollar Shave club it's uh a, they have a personal relationship and uh and then uh, and, and then a company like uh Werber parker parker can uh makes eyeglasses they can set up retail shops or they can have a retail presence amazon can't do that uh, they made a, a try with books, but they they dialed that back. But so anyway, there are things you can do uh, that will look at the Amazon uh, liabilities or handicaps, and and these
0: companies have been extremely successful. Yes. Yeah, so the one of the things that um, I noticed is that you you've emphasized the power of signature stories, and you've kind of told us a little bit about that, but. More generally, how can brands effectively craft these signature stories? Is there a, you know, um, a methodology or a mindset or a practice that you would advise? It turns out it's really hard. Um,
2: so I make the premise that, you know, if you try to, to run an ad or a, a video or something, first of all, uh, people got information overload and there's media clutter and it just their coping strategy is to ignore you. And if you if you do get through, their strategy then is to counter-argue, to be skeptical and say, yeah, but you're just trying to sell me something. So what do you do with those twin challenges? Well, it turns out stories get through. Because if you have a really interesting story, a story that's so interesting people will share it, um, you know, it's just a story. Why would you to argue a story? So stories can get through, and so uh uh it's it's pretty easy. And people now they head, they they that they buy that. You you don't need a lot of data, although we have hundreds of site of, of psychological studies that show that, but you don't need a lot of studies, it's just common sense. Stories work, people know that. You remember stories, you don't remember things that don't have stories. So if and If you want to communicate facts, uh, embed them in a story, or use the story to motivate the facts, and or to use the facts to tee up the story, you know, to illustrate these facts, da 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 da. So anyway, uh, you you still can communicate facts in the context of a story or using a story. So so then why don't? So a lot, lot of people. Uh, are so preoccupied with their communication objective, they don't think of stories. But if you get them to think about stories, it's still hard. I mean, there's a nonprofit I work with, and I meet with this CEO a couple of times a year, and I always talk about stories. And she said, yeah, we're, we're working on it. And it, it turns out it's hard to find stories. And it turns out that even if you find stories, they come to life, you don't have a, a ready-made creative team that can polish and 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 produce the story into a into a an article or a video that will really work, and uh, and so there's very few fir- firms that have sort of closed the loop and ha- have have somebody out there looking for stories and somebody and a little team that can
1: turn them around. David, I'd like to come on to an age-old debate that sits within our industry and one that's perhaps backed up by some level of empirical evidence both ways, but I'd love to get your take on this, which is the the role between brand differentiation versus brand distinctiveness and what you believe leads to greater effectiveness and um, as a consequence of following one versus the other path. I don't see any difference. What what do you see as the difference? So what the, the thought leaders suggest is that differentiation is when you um, are able to earmark yourself as a clear point of difference from the competitive set around you using a variety of different USPs perhaps product, place, price, promotion USPs, but, you know, geared against versus competition, whilst distinctiveness, on the other hand, is all around the distinct brand assets that you have, whether that be packaging, logo, color schemes, um, celebrity style endorsements, etc., that keep you um, looking in a very sort of unique way that builds muscle memory. Yeah. And, you know, well, there's, I, there's two sides I... of that coin
2: in my book uh, only game changes subcategories i point out that the only way to grow literally the only way with almost no exceptions is to provide something that's so distinctive that other uh organizations and brands are simply not relevant or at least they're much less relevant and uh and that means that you may still like those brands you may but you, you know i i would uh, uh, you know love your 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 sedan if I'm a car manufacturer but I now want to buy an electric electric vehicle and so despite the fact that I love you to death I'm not buying what you're se- what you're making anymore I'm I'm buying something else and so um you you have to be relevant that means you have to make what they're buying and it also means there's an opportunity to create a whole new subcategory, I call it. It's a, it, it's something that have what I call must haves. And so it has one, two, or usually four or five must haves. And that's something that uh, a, a customer will maybe insist on, or at least have a high preference for something that has it. So if 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 a uh, some other organization makes a product that lacks one of these must haves, he will not be relevant. Or 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 be much less relevant. And uh and so uh, in 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 terms of having the credibility of being able to make what they want to buy. And so that's a way that's a real way to win. That's a real way to grow. You you don't win by uh having my brand preferred over your brand. You win because my brand is the only brand that's does what you want to have done. And uh so it's from a brand preference competition to a brand relevance competition. And uh and and I and now that I I I think what they're getting at there is to be distinctive is to win in the brand relevance route. To be differentiated is to is to win in the brand uh, uh brand preference route. And so yeah, I i I wrote two books about that and I really totally agree with that. But I I've looked at I started looking at Japanese beer data for 30 years, and uh, I found there was only four times the market share trajectory in that whole time period. And they were all when whole new subcategories were found, like acai dry. And uh, uh, and you look at other categories and you feel the same thing. You look at computers, you look at uh, software. Asperto growth always associated with, I guess what you're calling brand distinctiveness. Uh, but what I would call, uh, having the must-haves to define a new subcategory.
0: Love it. Thank you. Brilliant. Oh, and, and inspiring and insightful. Uh, we, we've, we've come to the end of time. It's gone in a flash. Um, I'm going to end on the point about books and, and it's either, what is the book you're working on now? What is the book you haven't yet written or you dream of writing? Given that it's such a core cool part of the way that you've educated the world around marketing and branding,
2: well, uh, this book, "The Pursuit of, of uh-huh. uh, Purpose-Driven Driving," has kind of occupied me since it uh, for it's been on for now a year and a quarter, and I spent that time trying to explain to people why uh, why the ideas are are worthwhile, and uh, that's sort of typical for me. After I write a book, I need to. And, uh, you know what happens is it, it's kind of tragic in a way because about six or eight months after I've written the book, the everything clicks into place, and I wish I could start writing at that point. <laughs> um, but uh, and I I usually think I should have had a different title, even and, but anyway, I I, uh, I it's really gratifying to have the ideas, you know, after I give. You know, dozens if not hundreds of talks about it, and write articles off it, and so on. And The idea, central idea, said really crystallize, and uh, uh, and that's that's really fun. Uh, I think my uh, my next book might be uh, uh, maybe I'll revise a brand portfolio book, or or maybe I'll write another book or some articles around the idea of the silver bullet brands and the power of branded differentiators, branded energizers, and so on. Uh, because I think that is really a key to branding success. It's a key to strategy success.
1: David, wow. You know, so much firepower still to go. The gusto of, of continued writing and authorship is just so inspiring. Thank you. I think we've come to the end of the segment here today. And what a what a wonderful segment it is you are a true luminary in in what you've done what you've achieved and the concepts that you articulated from you know brand equity right through to all the various books multi-dimensional branding portfolio management the purpose um you know the purpose of brands and the heart of that social programs and all the like are really something that you've spearheaded you know you're the one who's trailblazed this this space and you know to that end, you know, it's it's a massive pleasure to have spoken to you to here today. It's it's a privilege that we get to do so and learn where some of these embryonic concepts have really originated from that we now see in the mainstream of branding here today. So to that extent, you truly are the father of modern branding. And with that note, just want to say another massive thank you for all your time that you've spent with us today. It's been a great privilege and a truly insightful experience. Thank you.
2: Thank you. But glad to have done it.